another episode of Just Jerry Live, Plotting Perspectives in Church Life, also known as Book Reviews, with Todd Bryant and Jeff Short. How are you? Well, trying to get through this book. It seems like it's been uh, a long time to get through 130 pages of a book. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder if our millions of listeners think that this book is you know, 1,200 pages long since it's taken us a, a bit to get this far. <laughs> I think both of us, if we were just reading this book, would probably read it in one sitting. Probably so. Yeah, it's not a hard read. It's pretty straightforward, and I've 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 enjoyed the perspective. It's, it's been difficult for me not to read ahead. So I'll just ask you up front, you've read chapter 10 through 14. Yeah, in fact, I read it this morning. Yeah, I, I read half of it this morning. I read a little bit of it yesterday before uh, I preached last night. So we haven't discussed this or anything. We're gonna do, we're gonna do our best to cover chapters ten through fourteen, which uh, ten is Peter's teaching, eleven is the new heavens and the new earth, which really doesn't address anything that we're gonna spend a lot of time on. I wouldn't think probably addresses pre- full preterism more than anything. Chapter 12 is Paul's resurrection teaching. Chapter 13 is Paul's teaching on Christ's return. And chapter 14 is the final judgment. So we're going to do our best to breeze through those things sort of quickly just because we don't want to be doing this book review for the next six months. And I'm sure people are tired of it again. Right. So chapter 10 is is titled Peter's Teaching. And specifically, he is in Second Peter chapter 3. And he prefaces this by saying, I believe that this passage is the clearest systematic teaching on the end times that we have in scripture. I'm just going to tell you, I thought that was just an over-the-top statement. Am I wrong? Well, it continues to be to show this just erroneous approach to scripture. You know, he complained about Revelation 20 and then he started in Luke 20. Well, now he's in Second Peter 3. He's even closer to Revelation 20 and using this as a passage that defines a whole entire system. It's just this, it's a very unnatural approach to a text. And definitely, uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, this is just not the way the Bible works. Uh, it is a continual progressive revelation from beginning to end. And all passages that touch on a subject bear on that subject, and they all have to be taken into account. And they are all equally inspired. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you know, no passage is more inspired or more authoritative than any other. That's what I would have said. No, no passage is more authoritative than any other. And he says that Second Peter 3 should be used... These are his words to interpret the book of Revelation. And then he turns right around and says that other people use Revelation to interpret Second Peter. <laughs> I don't yeah. see how that's not exactly the same thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, exactly yeah, yeah, absolutely. So which I'm going to say both of those approaches are wrong. You shouldn't use necessarily one book as the rule to interpret all other books you should try to try to do your best to take them all on equal footing realizing that they all harmonize and do your absolute best to come down to 
the bottom of things where they all fit together. He continues to say, though, that this is clear and simple language. And I really think that's where he errs. He, he seems to try to find this passage where things seem clearest. And, I, and it's always a passage that fits in his mind, you know, what, what he believes. And then he, and then he goes and it reinterprets other passages that seem to clearly say something else. That's just a problem for me. Right. Well, and again, the designation of what is the clearest and simplest passage is a bit arbitrary. There's there's nothing biblically objective about identifying what's the clearest and simplest passage that's going to reinterpret all others. No, I agree. And, and to have four verses in Second Peter that determines your direction of the entire book of Revelation is just not a good hermeneutic. No, not at all. Well, and now I would say that he pushes the envelope just a little bit on earlier in the book about linking literalists, those of us who would try to take the Bible as literally as we possibly could, with almost being quacky at times, you know. But he pushes this day of the Lord further than anybody I have ever seen, amillennial or not. The day of the Lord, by his definition, is literally one day. Right. I, and it, this came up a little bit before, but I don't think we mentioned it in one of the earlier chapters. But here again, uh, now this is on page 54. He says the judgment, the destruction of the wicked and the destruction of the earth will occur on the same day. And he's referring to a literal 24 hour day, which, again, I, I find very interesting because that is a very woodenly literal approach to the day of the Lord, which is. Certainly a figure that is used, well, most in the Old Testament, uh, though it also appears in the New Testament as well, uh, and certainly is not talking about a 24-hour day. No, absolutely not. It, that, and that's that's really not even debatable. And like I said, he's the only person I've ever heard that holds that particular position. I've, I've got all millennial friends that I know do not believe that. Anyway, it, it is what it is. It's funny that he quotes... Second Peter three, when, you know, it says that they deliberately speak, speaking of the scoffers, you know, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Now, remember, this is the guy who was just arguing that there is there are only two ages and the first age is from creation until the second coming of Christ and the next age is the eternal ages. And right. he, he quotes this passage that seems to obviously mention another age. Certainly. <laughs> he also makes this statement, which I thought was a little bit odd. The earth will remain unchanged until the day of judgment, which will also be the day of destruction of the godly. I mean, you've really got to ignore not only a plethora of Old Testament passages to believe that, but quite a number of New Testament passages, including the words of our Lord and Savior, when you to say the world is going to remain unchanged until the eternal ages, that's just not the case. Right. Yeah. You and you simply cannot talk about the day of the Lord without dealing with the Old Testament passages, which are far more abundant about the day of the Lord than the New Testament passages. And in and in that day of the Lord in the Old Testament, islands are removed out of their way, mountains crumble, 
earthquakes happen. So to say that it's just going to be the same old earth until the end is just not consistent with all of those passages. And he continues, by the way, to add, you know, he's going to he's going to bring MacArthur up later and say that MacArthur reads between the lines. But he continues to put the word kingdom in where the the word is simply not in the text. And that's the definition of reading between the lines. Absolutely. All right. Um, in, anything else on that particular chapter? I, I think we can we can agree that that's just a bad hermeneutic again, and it probably comes out worse there than than anywhere in the book. Well, and it it fails, I think, really even to take into account you know all the context of of the very passage that he's looking at. You know, you have a this day of the Lord judgment that comes. You have the renovation of the earth, sometimes referred to as a regeneration or a renewal, uh, restoration, restitution of all things in different places. And it's, it is likened to the judgment of the flood, you know, that came in Noah's time. And so the earth, you know, and, and such as was then, it says, you know, it's passed away. It's, it's done. And so this day of the Lord is something similar or something like that. And he really doesn't even address that. No, that's certainly true. And I, I, I really was a little bit disappointed with his approach to that particular passage. I just thought that he he went further than he had before and clearly had a a devious purpose. That's probably not a good word, but, you know, he's trying to just convince readers of something that's not necessarily there in the text. And and again, I don't don't think most of our amillennial friends would necessarily agree with everything that he had to say in that chapter. Probably some, but not everything. So so chapter 11 is about the new heavens and the new earth. Ultimately, it's just proving that there is going to be a future new heavens and new earth. And though I do not agree with every sentence in this chapter, he is primarily refuting preterism in this chapter. Do you want to deal with that very much? The the chapter is one of those places where I scratched my head a little bit and I asked, who is your audience? Who are you writing to? Because yeah, it's, it's really about full preterism and he, he, he continues to slide that in from time to time. And I think it's an effort to try to distance himself because all millennialists are preterists. Now they're not hyper preterists. They're not what's considered full preterists. I understand that. Um, but they are preterists. And I, I think that, uh, chapter just goes to show that that's nagging at him a little bit. And, uh, he just kind of wanted to slide that in there. Uh, which really didn't just didn't even seem necessary, but I did. No, I don't see a lot to say about it. Yeah, I, I did. This one sentence he says on page fifty nine near the end, he says this is very clearly a physical earth that Peter is talking about, which I, I completely agree with, and it doesn't make any sense in context to switch to a symbolic or spiritual heavens and earth. I agree, but I would say that he, because of his position does that very thing in other places where it doesn't make sense to switch from literal to sim to symbolic. You know, I, I well, he's, he's going to do that when he gets to the end of revelation 19, he's going to do that for revelation 20. Then when he gets to uh, revelation 21, he's going to switch back again. So yeah, it, it's a bit inconsistent. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So chapter 12 goes to Paul's resurrection teaching and he is dealing with first Corinthians chapter 15 which, by the way, the, the entire chapter is dealing with the resurrection. He does not cover the entire chapter. But right. it, he speaks here about 
like on page 65, and I've actually got a lengthy section. I hope not to read it all, but he says, Christ will deliver the kingdom of God to his father, having destroyed this world, its ruler, and all of its enemies. He will subject all earthly and spiritual rulers to his authority finally and fully. Then he says this, as if this is in the text. Christ is reigning now. We will return to this, but Christ is reigning now in his kingdom before he has returned, before the resurrection. And I'm sorry, you may believe that, but that is not exposition relative to 1 Corinthians 15 because it does not. not at all. It, that simply is not in the text. And to rag, you know, MacArthur later reading between the lines, when, when you're willing, you know, to read between the lines is just not a good way to approach a subject. Well, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is, he's countering the fact that there were those in Corinth that believed there was no resurrection. Exactly. And so Paul's main point is to show that there is a resurrection and that if, you know, if there is no resurrection, then, well, Christ isn't risen. And if Christ is not risen, then just pack it all up because all this is meaningless. It's all worthless. Our faith, our repentance, our practice, our, I mean, it's just all worthless. Our, our suffering, our sacrifice, what have you. So the point is that there is resurrection and Paul's point obviously is dealing with those who have died. They're not just perished and lost. Um, and then he's talking about the order of resurrection, Christ, the first fruits, and then afterward, they that are Christ at his coming, the end will come when he has reigned and put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that's destroyed is death which of course occurs at the great white throne judgment when all is cast into the lake of fire and all, you know, all death is done at that point. So yes, he is talking about some aspects of what's going to happen in the future. But again, Paul's primary point, which this is a very long chapter and that's just a few verses in, in part of the chapter. Uh, he's talking about the fact that there is resurrection and how, that Jesus' resurrection is a part of a sequence which shows us that if Christ has been raised, then we're also going to be raised. This resurrection that is to follow is also going to take place. Absolutely. But nothing in that passage even hints to the kingdom being right now. And that's what he did. Not at all. Yeah, no, not absolutely. He goes on to say the resurrection is the final perfection of his rule. He is currently expanding his rule and reign through the church, not in that passage. And it would be difficult to look at, well, let's just take the seven churches in Asia, for instance, to whom the book of Revelation is addressed. That particular area of the world today has been dominated for the last several hundred years by Islam. So, right. so actually Islam has wiped, you know, Christianity sort of off the map in that particular area. You, I think I mentioned this in another podcast, but you could look at the same thing in England where 200 years ago Christianity was, was thriving in England, but today it is pretty much a humanistic, you know, post-Christian society. So this idea that Christ is expanding his rule and reign through his church, first of all, sounds an awful lot like post-millennialism, but it's simply not what we're seeing right now. 
No, it does not. It's not consistent with the biblical teaching, and it's not consistent even with you know our experience throughout history. You know, from the ascension of Christ until now. Absolutely. So, was there anything else in this particular chapter that that struck you? Well, he goes on, page sixty-five, right there from from where you were reading, talking about how they'll you know at Christ's return, there's no more rebellion. The, church's mission on earth of spreading his kingdom throughout the world will be finished. Christ will take authority and every rebellious knee will bow and all these kind of things, which isn't exactly what first Corinthians 15 is saying. And it also does not, you know, there are other passages that bear on this time. I mean, you can't simply just look at a few verses here in first Corinthians 15 and set up this entire system. I have been very disappointed in the fact that he, he is, he is terrible about taking four or five verses and then saying, okay, now we're going to just interpret the entire Bible over this thing. It, it, well, he is being, con- he is being consistent, you know, cause he said he was going to take, you know, what he deemed to be simple and clear and is going to use that to reinterpret everything else. And he has consistently done that. I'm going to make the argument that the Old Testament, which he has not so much as touched, is extremely clear. And certainly, you know, he hasn't he hasn't looked at it at all. He obviously quotes Luke 20 again, which we dealt with ad nauseum already. I'm not going to go back into that, but he tries to make it say what, you know, what he's already deemed it to be saying before. He goes on to say the resurrection must occur after all tribulation and all battle, both spiritual and earthly. The only after the defeat of every other enemy, sin, the world system with its kingdoms, the flesh, the principalities, Satan, and the wicked, will death be defeated by the resurrection of the dead. The problem is death isn't necessarily defeated by the resurrection of the dead as it is defeated by the final judgment, right? Right. I think he misstates there, and I want to think if we were sitting over coffee, he would actually back up and say, yeah, that's right. I will I will offer that there are a number of passages, Revelation 20 certainly being one of those, that clearly seem to speak of two, two, rep- two resurrections that are separated by a gap of time. And, and you will notice that he did not touch on that. Now, I don't know if he's going to talk about that later when he's talking about Revelation in particular. He mentioned the resurrection of believers, and of course, you know, in his system, he's trying to to have a general resurrection when Revelation 20 clearly shows that there is a difference. There's a, there's a time difference between the resurrection of the believers and the resurrection of unbelievers. The rest of the dead did not live for a thousand years. Right. I mean, that is a clear statement. And if you're if you're going to have a chapter on the resurrection, you can't just ignore that. You're going to have to explain it. And and I think that we did admit when we began this thing in the introduction that there are difficult passages on both sides of every, you know, every prophetic view, but you just you don't get to just ignore those hard passages. You need to you need to deal with. Them. Now he may deal with it later. We haven't read ahead, but anyway. Anything else? No. All right. Chapter 13, Paul's teaching on Christ's return. This chapter is mostly trying to, you know, squash the rapture idea. Now, we can spend some time here if you'd like to. I I really don't think this is the argument that we're arguing for in the book, even though I think we both would be considered to be pre-trib. We're really 
arguing more for a messianic kingdom, you know, as opposed to amillennialism that does not believe in a messianic kingdom. I, I will say this, though, about this chapter. He immediately does what I, I'm often disappointed with on those that, that opposed, you know, a premillennial view of scripture. He immediately links premillennialists with the Left Behind series. And that is just not fair. I, I do not know any reputable premillennialist that believes Left Behind series is anything more than a fictional book. No serious Bible student believes that it accurately portrays the events of Revelation or anything like that. And I, I just, I wish guys would stop throwing those arguments out there. Well, you know, there are some people probably who get their theology from the Left Behind series. And for that matter, you know, there are people that got their theology from Duck Dynasty. So I don't think anyone with any ounce of seriousness about Bible study is going to view such a fictional work like Left Behind as any sort of serious theology. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe even the authors have repeatedly stated that, you know, this is a fictional work. Absolutely. And but by lumping premillennialists in with that, it's just an argument against your your opponent, not an argument against their doctrine. And I I really I just don't like the tactic. It's ad hominem. It's probably I would say thus far, probably the most disingenuous part of this book. Yeah, I agree. And and he, he goes on to say nowhere does the Bible say there will be multiple returns of Christ. Honestly. Jesus returns to the earth in my system at the the end of the time of Jacob's trouble to set up the messianic kingdom, and that's it, right? That's the second coming. Right. I just that is got, the second coming. I've got Jesus coming one more time in my eschatology. Of course, you know, that also doesn't account for the fact that, you know, as you get to the end of the Old Testament, there's only one coming of Christ that can be seen clearly at all. You know, it's not it's not until he comes and then we can see that, yeah, there there were some some things in the Old Testament, but uh, it, it's not as clear. He came one time, and then he's going to come again. It was, and it was a part of the confusion on the part of the disciples in Acts one when they ask, well, you know, okay, so you he's died, he's been resurrected, he spent forty days with them teaching them about the kingdom that's going to come, and so they say, okay, well, is now the time? You know, now now's when you're going to restore the kingdom, and course you know as the parables taught no there's going to be a delay it's not at his first coming it's actually at his second coming that kingdom is going to come yeah that's what i was going to say uh, you know he had all these parables that the, the the primary point of these parables was that there is going to be that delay of the kingdom and listen i, I again i don't want to get into this chapter but he makes this point about you know the word rapture is not in the bible and stuff look no matter no matter what your position of eschatology is that's such a weak argument, and I think that he knows, I really do, that the word rapture just comes from the Latin word raptura, which is behind that caught up in First Thessalonians 4.17. I'm, I'm confident that he does know that, and we get a ton of words from Latin, theological and otherwise. Uh, well, the, ti- the title of his subtitle of his book is An Easy Introduction to Amillennialism. And I guess we could also point out that the word amillennialism is not in the Bible either. Sure. Well, you know, it's odd. The word Bible isn't in the Bible. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just that's just not the point. But I, I do believe that he knows that that's from a Latin translation and that that word actually is in the Latin Bible. And it like many theological words just rooted there. That's just. 
that was a little bit dishonest to me. I, I've been really encouraged by his his attitude and what I felt like when he was being honest. But I, I just think he knows that most of his readers won't know that that's behind there. And so he pulls that out. But I think that that's just not. I, once again, I stood back with this chapter and I'm asking, why is this chapter in this book? I agree. Um, because it really is not germane to his primary subject. And it really, it does nothing but distract. And I, th- I think it's a bit of a red herring. But I also think it's just sort of a quick little jab to try to, again, associate premillennialism with left behind and to try to just sow some doubts in the minds of those who are premillennial and, you know, to make them, I guess, more accepting of an amillennial position. Yeah, this is the chapter, by the way, where he quotes John MacArthur as having said that the rapture is found between the white space or in the white spaces between chapters three and four of Revelation. But he's really taken MacArthur out of context a little bit because all MacArthur is saying is that he believes that the rapture is taught elsewhere and Revelation is teaching about the, the ejecting of the usurper. But if we were going to place the rapture in time relative to the book of Revelation, we would place it here. He's not right. talking about reading between the lines. That's not what he means. And that's, you know, that's a little bit dishonest, too, in my my opinion. Yeah, I think that's been his worst chapter. Yeah, I agree. And and again, I, I don't want to go into all of this, but he, he definitely reads between the lines in First Thessalonians 7 and you know, I mean, I mean, First Thessalonians four seventeen and eighteen. He he really says that says some things that it does not. Right. But anyway, I, that's actually pretty obvious to any reader of that chapter. I think even the amillennialists would say, well, he's probably reading in some there that's not there. So moving on, chapter fourteen, the final judgment. Now I'm going to tell you, I had an issue with this illustration that he starts this chapter with. It bothered me. He talks about this drunk guy, and I, I don't know if this was an illustration or if he's saying this really happened. He never, you know, gave that away. But he was talking about a drunk guy that he was doing a Bible study with, which makes it a little bit unbelievable at that point, you know. But he says, you know, the drunk guy wanted to hug him when the Bible study was over. And he says, in that split moment of time, I heard a whisper what you do for the least of these, you do unto me. Well, I'm just going to tell you, he did not hear the voice of God in his ear. No. And then he makes this drunk Jesus. He says, suddenly Ernie was Jesus. And I wrap my arms around him. He goes on to say months later, the police found Ernie's body in an alley. Well, that's a pretty good indication that Ernie may not have known the Lord. If, if if he's a drunk and he's not leaving it, he's not repenting, he's not following Christ. And I just really disliked that illustration that he began this chapter with. I don't really see what it contributed to the chapter myself, but yeah. And I and I, I you know in this day and age of people saying that God's talking to them, I, I just don't like. He that may not mean what he meant. But surely to goodness, somebody that read this book before it was ever printed knew that that is what it says, (laughs) whether you meant it or not. Okay, so he goes into the judgment seat, and he begins in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
And I don't know if if you thought about it, but I immediately thought, you know, First Corinthians actually deals with the judgment seat of Christ in chapter three. This right. is the same church that received that letter. And that particular letter makes it awful clear that every believer will stand before Jesus in judgment. And that passage in First Corinthians 3.15 ends by saying, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So when Paul is writing them this second letter, or what some would argue would be the third letter, he he is he is just adding more information. It's not conflicting with what he wrote in the first epistle. Right. So when he begins to say Jesus is not only giving out rewards at this judgment, he's also judging people for their evil deeds, I think he's missing that Paul has already given quite an explanation that if your works have not been done for Christ, you will suffer loss, but you will be saved. And he reads into this, you know, the great desire, the, the general judgment at this point, without even considering what this church had already received in the first epistle. Did you think of that? He makes a lot out of the word evil, Second Corinthians 5.10. I think the King James there says uh, good or bad. But but nevertheless, he he takes that to be judgment of the good people or righteous or godly and judgment of the evil or the wicked, which is not at all what that text says. Right. Um, and he says, you you know, you have to believe that believers are going to be punished. Well, no, it, it, not not punished in terms of judgment on sin, but our works are going to be judged. And Paul is very clear. We're going to suffer loss. There are works, which, again, the word um, kakos in the Greek there, it can mean bad. It can mean evil. It can also just mean worthless, which is very consistent with what Paul says about the, you know, the wood, hay and stubble and the gold and silver and precious stones, whatever. You know, there are things that are going to be burned up and there are things that are going to remain. So, in other words, look, the we're going to give an account of our stewardship of our faithfulness in life and we're going to receive reward and we're going to suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ. But what Paul does not say in any of those passages is anything about a judgment of unbelievers. No, neither one of them. The ending, the ending result is everyone is saved at the end of that judgment. And this is, this is another example where I've been a little bit disappointed about his willingness to jump over passages to get to the one he wants to use and then not ever go back to the ones that say something different. And again, this subject Paul addressed in the first epistle to the church at Corinth, and he has got to deal with that passage before he gets to this one and starts making it out to be something that it's not. He also goes to Jesus's discussion of the the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. It is interesting, Matthew 25, 32, the word nations there is is the Greek word ethnos, which normally speaks of Gentile nations in contrast to the Jews. And since, right. since Jesus is talking to Jewish people, this would have been shocking to them that when Jesus is talking about the judgment of the nations, the ethnos, that there would be sheep among them that had done good things to the people of God and for the people of God and for the Messiah, I think he is completely missing a major point in that 
particular passage as he's just using this as a as a prophecy of a general judgment. Right. Is that anything else there? Well, that's a, you know, obviously that is a the judgment of the nations, you know, which comes before the millennial kingdom. You know, he has a statement there on page number 76 that the as a result, the righteous will enter into eternal life and the age to come, which is just not exactly what that passage says. But he goes on to say that if the judgment of the wicked and the righteous occur at the same time, then premillennials millennialism's assertion that the wicked are judged 1000 years after the saints cannot be true, except for the fact that that's is exactly what Revelation 20 says. Absolutely. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what, his statement on page 78 is just a little bit over the top. Uh, he says, if the judgment of the righteous and the wicked do, does not occur at the same time, then Jesus's parables were a poor parallel to actual events. Listen, I, I am very cautious when addressing something like this and saying Jesus's parallels or par- parables were a poor parallel to actual events. Because number one, if there is a future messianic kingdom, then he's labeling Jesus's teaching as bad. And I think that's right. really not the type of language. No matter what position you hold, don't make those over the top statements. Because if you find out you were wrong, now you've labeled Jesus's teaching as being bad. And I, I don't make, I try not to make such statements myself. He finally does pull in Revelation 20 here, but I was disappointed that he began in verse 11 and did not back up far enough to see that the resurrections were at different times, right? clearly and simply, you know, in the book of Revelation. And and I don't know why he so willingly skips things that obviously just disagree with his position. Revelation 20 and 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they will be preaching God and Christ and they will reign with him a thousand years. Verse five before that, though, says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And of course, he just skips that as if it's not there. And you just you can't just skip it. Right. And he's of course, all of his efforts here are to equate the judgment seat of Christ and the white throne judgment. And and because his system requires that he has to have it be the same. The problem is, is that they're not the same and they are certainly distinguished. So even if you take just what he's quoted here, beginning with verse 11 and not accounting for, you know, like what you just said, you notice that the groups and the result of the judgment is different. These are distinct judgments at the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone is saved and they're going to receive reward and they're going to suffer loss. Having works burned up, obviously that imagery of, of a trial by fire, but at the end of this white throne judgment, you notice everyone is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Those are two different groups of people. Those are two different outcomes. Those are two different judgments. And, he, you know, he's already made the case earlier just as he explained what he was going to say that, you know, the word thousand just means a long time. And let's just the rest of the dead did not live for a long time. It doesn't matter. Right. Fifteen minutes. I mean, it's still two different resurrections. <laughs> I don't know how we so willingly ignore those things. 
Well, that gets us from chapter 10 through chapter 14. We obviously hit the, you know, just the high points in those chapters. But was there was there anything else that you wanted to say? Mm, no, we've already been going a pretty long time. I can't think of anything else to say. The only thing that I'll add, and I think you'll agree, is that his hermeneutic seems to continue to be his problem. He wants to find three or four verses that seem to teach what he wants and then reinterpret everything else based on that. Yeah, I agree that that has been consistently been his approach. I, I agree. Let's look at all of it on an equal plane. It's all equally inspired and equally authoritative. All right, this is just Jerry Live signing off for the day. 